Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The world's biggest trade agreement has just been signed. What will the Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership mean for its members and for those outside the club? You're listening to Money Talks on Economist Radio, our weekly podcast on the markets, the economy and the world of business. I'm Patrick Lane, and also in today's show, what President Trump's parting nominations to the Federal Reserve mean for the American economy. In the long run, it would end up hurting Republicans as much as Democrats, and it's a line that really shouldn't be crossed, but, but here we are, seemingly about to cross it. And the candy-pink Swedish unicorn hoping to work its magic in America. They really do make shopping very easy and it's driven mainly by young, credit-hungry shoppers. But because it's so easy, it's also why Klarna is quite controversial. First, this week, 15 countries from across the Asia-Pacific signed the world's largest plurilateral trade agreement. The Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership, or RCEP, is the result of eight years of what Malaysia's trade minister, Mohamed Azmin Ali, has called negotiating with blood, sweat and tears. RCEP's members have hailed it as a victory for open, inclusive, rules-based trade, at a time when such cooperation seems rare. But some worry that the deal may be a step towards a new world order, in which China calls the shots all over Asia. In terms of size, this is clearly an ambitious, big agreement with, with lots of the world's GDP involved. Sumaya Keynes is The Economist's trade and globalisation editor. We've got the 10 members of, of ASEAN, a block of Asian countries. And then we also have Japan, New Zealand, Australia, China and South Korea. You have very, very poor members like Laos and then you have very, very rich ones like Japan. So the idea that you could bring them all together under a single set of rules is fairly ambitious. But if you start to look at the details of what's in this deal, the level of ambition starts to to fall. Only 90% of tariff lines are are cut under this deal and over a period of, of as long as 20 years. That is actually quite low relative to other deals where closer to 100% are covered. The thing about this deal is that actually a lot of the members already had trade deals between each other. So if you look at the eye-popping numbers describing this deal, it's something like 30% of the world's GDP. But I calculated it's it's 83% of trade flows were between members that already had a deal. This is more incremental than, than first meets the eye. With trade agreements, very often the focus is on tariffs, but non-tariff barriers are very often just as important in obstructing global trade. What else does this agreement cover apart from tariffs? 
Well, so there is one really important thing that it includes, which is tariff related. And this relates to the rules of origin under the deal. So I said that there were lots of pre-existing agreements between members, but actually that was a nightmare for exporters because you might have you know, a coffee cup producer in uh, Malaysia, uh, and they might face three different sets of rules when trying to export that coffee cup to China, Japan, South Korea. Uh, and so what RCEP does is it makes one set of rules. And so you just need one piece of paperwork to shuffle your goods around the area. That's actually a really important innovation that, that there's this harmonization of the rules of origin as part of the deal. There are other bits, some commitments on um, investment so governments have committed not to require various things that, that investors don't like. There are rules on local content requirements, that sort of thing. And there are provisions on services, albeit fairly patchy ones. Now, big as this deal is or looks, it, it might have been a lot bigger, mightn't it? Because originally India was going to be one of the participants in this agreement, but it withdrew. Why was that? India withdrew because it was afraid of China. Essentially, there was always this concern that by lowering its its tariffs to China, Indian companies wouldn't be ready and they would be outcompeted. There are some who say that that was actually a mistake and that now under this deal, particularly given those those rules of origin, China will become even more centered in the region's supply chains. It's already it's already very, very important in those supply chains. But India essentially has lost the opportunity to signal that actually companies should should set up in India and be part of, of the region's supply chains. And you mentioned India's fear of China. I mean, to what extent does this agreement lead towards a, a more China-centric set of, of, of trade rules in the Asia-Pacific, say to compare with America's importance in NAFTA? Is this a step towards a China-led trade system? I think in one really important way it is. So if you think about the the TPP, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, that was an older deal that, that had America in it. And the idea with that deal was you would write these, these rules, these ambitious rules, and you would set up these supply chains and China wouldn't be involved. And essentially China would get FOMO, they would, they would worry about missing out, um, and that eventually they might be persuaded to, to join this pact. And what RCEP does is it basically gives China market access within the region without having to sign up to those more ambitious rules. Now, one can debate how big that draw of TPP would have been, uh, but it's clear that RCEP neutralizes some of that. And so that could make it less likely that China would have to sign up to some of these American rules in the region, say on state-owned enterprises, competition, that kind of thing, where other countries desperately want China to limit itself. So where does that leave America? The incoming president, Joe Biden, might he try to push for competing agreements? Has he got any way of revisiting the TPP? Would he want to revisit the TPP? 
I, I think the short answer is no, uh, at least not in the near term. I think in his campaign, he's been fairly clear that trade is just not going to be a priority, agreeing new trade deals. Now, trade is one of those issues that even if the president doesn't really want to engage with trade, trade tends to come to the president. So we will see in a few years time whether he he softens that and starts to see trade as a way of engaging in, in the region. But that is is a long way off, I think. And what's next for RCEP? How quickly will it come into force? I was actually fairly pessimistic about this. My experience of RCEP is that everyone always says it's round the corner and then and then it never is. But in this case, I was talking to Deborah Elms, who is the founder and executive director of the Asian Trade Centre. And she thought that it could come as quickly as, as the beginning of 2022. So consider my, my cynicism dampened. That's pretty speedy in the world of trade, isn't it? Very speedy indeed. Samaya Keynes, thank you very much. Thank you. You can read more about what RCEP means for the region and the world at economist.com. And much more besides. This week we examine how one of the biggest bank mergers since the Great Recession, PNC's purchase of BBVA's US arm, will change retail banking in America. And after the suspension of Ant Group's record-breaking IPO, we look at the new obstacles facing private enterprise in China. If you're not yet a subscriber, there's a special offer for listeners at economist.com slash podcast offer. And the link is in the show notes. Next, as Joe Biden moles his first economic policy appointments, it looks as if Donald Trump is about to make some of his last This week, Mitch McConnell, the Senate Majority Leader, intends to hold votes on the President's final two nominees to the Federal Reserve Board of Governors. Their approval would create another headache for Mr Biden. If Republicans keep control of the Senate, a divided Congress could leave the Fed almost with sole responsibility for supporting America's recovery. So, as well as securing more of Mr Trump's legacy, these appointments may further limit Mr. Biden's ability to fix America's economic problems. I am honored that the president has nominated me to serve as a member of the Board of Governors of the Federal Reserve System. The more controversial choice, Judy Shelton, is a former Trump campaign adviser. At her Senate confirmation hearing in February, Ms. Shelton acknowledged that her views are far from the mainstream. I think I would bring my own perspective, Mm -hmm. but I think the intellectual diversity strengthens the discussion and would be welcomed. She is an unusual choice for the Federal Reserve in a few ways. One, she is a lifelong conservative or Republican operative, uh, much more politically involved than your typical selection for a Federal Reserve position. Ryan Avent is writing about the Fed Mr. Biden will inherit for his next free exchange column. She's also someone who holds some fairly fringe views on monetary policy. She's been a longtime advocate for a return to the gold standard. She's called the sort of typical way in which the Fed makes its monetary policy something akin to Soviet state planning. Uh, These are not mainstream views within the economics community, even among conservative economists. And so in a number of ways, she's an unusual choice and one which could have a, a significant impact on the board. If, as now seems likely, her nomination is brought up for a vote this week and approved by the Senate. As I understand it, she's not only unorthodox in her views, but she's also chopped and changed a bit. 
Sherrod Brown, Democratic Senator for Ohio and ranking member of the Senate Banking Committee, was very outspoken on this concern during her hearing early this year. She was an interest rate hawk until President Trump wanted lower rates. She opposed tariffs on China before she was for them. And based upon what I and other committee members heard in meetings with her, it appears that Ms. Shelton has changed pretty much all her positions on everything from the gold standard to Bretton Woods to steadfast opposition to FDIC insurance. That's not the steadying hand required at the Fed. Ryan, can you tell us a bit about how Ms. Shelton's views have evolved over the years? So she has advocated over over a long period of time for a gold standard, which would fix the value of the dollar at uh, at a set price of gold, and and then that would determine how loose or tight monetary policy is. Typically, that's seen as as a very hawkish sort of stance for a candidate. As it seemed like she might be a viable choice for for Donald Trump, she has presented her views in a more um, vague way and sort of said that some of these old ideas she had about the gold standard are behind her now. I think you can gain valuable insights by comparing economic performance under one set of monetary rules versus another. But money only moves forward, and we see it evolving faster than ever these days. And so I only use it to give perspective on money. I don't think the way to interpret that is is her saying that she's um, she's switched from becoming hawkish to dovish, or that she's had a, a a sort of a serious rethink of her outlook on monetary policy. I think it's it's more an indication that the guideposts of Ms. Shelton's monetary policy is likely to be political. So I think had she been on the Federal Reserve Board of Governors for a second Trump term, we probably could expect her to vote in a very dovish way. I'm sure that Democrats are now concerned that if she's on the board during a Joe Biden presidency. We'll see the opposite, a very hawkish vote there for several years to come now. And those concerns among Democrats were very evident during Ms. Shelton's confirmation hearing, although she did maintain she wouldn't be politically influenced. Ms. Shelton, do you pledge to be independent in your decision-making regardless of what the president tells you to do? I pledge to be independent in my decision-making, and frankly, no one tells me what to do. Assuming she is confirmed, how much sway would she have? She'd be just one member of a seven-person board of governors, after all. It's true that she would have just one vote. But I think there's a few reasons to think that this might end up being more important than just its effect on voting outcomes. One thing to point out is that if both Ms. Shelton and Donald Trump's other remaining appointee is a more mainstream figure named Christopher Waller, if they are both approved, then six of the seven seats on the board of governors will have been filled by Donald Trump. The only other one, an Obama appointee named Lael Brainerd, who's a, a favorite for Treasury Secretary under Joe Biden. So it would be a, a very Republican, a very Trump Republican dominated board of governors, even if most of those appointees are much more mainstream in their typical views of monetary policy. But I think the bigger picture here is that she's not a respected monetary scholar. Uh, Republican presidents have tended to appoint conservative-leaning economists. Democratic presidents have tended to appoint left-leaning economists. But almost to a man, they've selected people who are respected in their field, seem to be willing to do the job in an an apolitical way, which is hugely important given how much power the Fed wields. This would break that precedent and would open the door to much more politicized voting on the Federal Reserve Board of Governors. And in the long run, it would end up hurting Republicans as much as Democrats. And it's a line that really shouldn't be crossed. But but here we are seemingly about to cross it. Assuming that both Mr. Trump's nominations are confirmed, how much power would Joe Biden have to shape the Fed once he takes office, whether through policy or through other appointments? Well, there are a number of appointments that are set to end during what would be Mr. Biden's first term. Uh, In particular, the chairman, Jerome Powell, his appointment will be up for renewal 
2022, there's been a lot of speculation that Biden might wish to put someone who's more loyal left-wing economist in that position, uh, even though Powell has earned praise from both sides of the aisle. Uh, I think that you know the, the really hard question for, for Biden is whether Democrats will control the Senate or not. If Republicans maintain control of the Senate and if they pursue governance in the way that they did in the early years of the Obama administration, it will be very difficult for Mr. Biden to appoint anyone to the Federal Reserve Board of Governors. And indeed, Mitch McConnell, the Senate Republican leader, has said that he may not allow confirmation of Biden's cabinet appointees. So if Democrats do not manage to take control of the Senate, there will be almost nothing realistically that, that Biden can do to meaningfully change the composition of the board and governors during his first term. Okay, let's put the politics of the Senate to one side and think about the policy questions facing the Fed with the economy in deep trouble because of COVID-19. How do you see the Fed playing things in the early part of 2021? Well, it's it's a very difficult situation, both for the Federal Reserve and the economy. I think the Federal Reserve had been hoping that there would be some meaningful uh, additional government spending, fiscal spending coming through. But given the the closeness of the Senate results, it seems unlikely that we're going to get a, a huge fiscal package. And so that means much more of the onus is going to be back on the Federal Reserve. Unfortunately, it doesn't have much room to maneuver. Uh, it's already reduced its policy interest rates to, to zero. Uh, it could do a number of other unconventional things, but those things generally aren't considered to be as, as much of a sure thing in terms of boosting economic output as fiscal policy or as normal interest rate policy. So the Fed's going to have a lot of responsibility foisted onto it that it didn't really want. And it, it, it may have to manage all this with a much more politicized board. So I think it's going to be a a very difficult year for the US economy and one that the Fed is going to have a hard time managing. So Mr. Biden's boxed in by the politics and the Fed is boxed in by the economics. That's a good way to put it, Patrick. Yes. Ryan, thank you very much. Thank you, Patrick. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. And finally... Europe's biggest fintech firm by far is Klarna. The Swedish payments company has some 90 million users and a funding round in September valued it at over $10.5 billion. Its investors include a venture capital giant, Sequoia Capital, and Visa, the world's biggest payments network. Having conquered the old continent, Klarna now has its sights set on America. To boost its transatlantic appeal, it got another of its investors, Snoop Dogg, to star in one of its candy pink adverts. Knowing that I could pay for all of this later hmm. makes me so relaxed. Picture, if you will, the rapper lying in a vast pink satin bed, surrounded by perfectly coiffed, blonde Afghan hounds. Today, I'm going to be talking to you about Miss Klarna. Now, who's Miss Klarna, you ask? Wait, who is she again? It's an app. Oh. And in pursuit of a new generation, the company then recruited Bretman Rock, 
a Filipino-American beauty influencer with legions of fans on TikTok, Instagram, and YouTube. The necessity of life. Food, water, clothing, and Klarna, bitch. Clothing's optional. But is the buy now, pay later phenomenon anything more than a credit card for Generation Z? Klarna really sells itself on simplicity and smoothness. And fun, I guess, with their pink branding. Wendelin von Brido is our European business correspondent. It made its name with its main services, which is buy now, pay later, by enabling customers to buy, let's say, a jumper now, but then they'll have, say, 30 days to pay for it. And Klarna will meanwhile pay the retailer. I went to Stockholm and interviewed the co-founder and CEO of Klarna, Sebastian Siemiatkowski, at their very sleek headquarters. And he told me why he thinks Klarna is different. This is what really excites me, which really allows us to create a differentiating experience. I'll show you. When you swipe your Visa card, the only information that travels is the amount. With Klarna, we know not only that you bought for $100, we know you bought a sweater of this size, at this color. And then when we show you your transaction history, think about your traditional transaction history yeah, in the bank. We have no idea what it was Exactly. Called. Look at what yeah, we're yeah. showing. This is how it looks with us. Ah, so okay. you actually see images of the items that you bought. We will track your shipment. You can also sort it so you can see like all of your purchases with ASOS. So you can see what did I buy with them. You can follow them. You can see their Instagram feed, so it feeds in their content. And then it becomes a browser, so you can go continue shopping from that additional purchase. I mean, I can see why clients would be interested, but you know, some are in Germany in particular are so private. Are mm -hmm. they okay with that's you knowing good. all that stuff? Yeah, yeah so, so that's a very good question. Yeah. And so we believe, because you're collecting this data, first and foremost, you need to be extremely transparent. Secondly, provide opt-in, opt-outs, and so forth. But the third most important thing is that our primary purpose is not to use that data to sell it off to somebody else. Our primary purpose is to find out, can we use that data to make a better experience for you? Wendling, with all these data at their disposal, their formula is clearly successful. Just how fast is Klarna growing? Well, Klarna has grown exponentially over the last few years. It has signed up 200,000 uh, retailers in 17 countries. And it's now capturing 10% of the entire e-commerce market in Northern Europe. Last year, its revenue jumped by almost one third to 7.2 million kroners. In 2017, they were granted a, a banking license in Sweden. And indeed, their ambition is to be part of what they call the revolution of banking in the next 10 or 20 years. And now they're trying to expand into America. But that's a completely different market. What makes them so confident they can make it there? Simon, you're absolutely right. Um, America is a very different ecosystem. They've clearly done very well so far. They already have 9 million customers in America. And just recently they signed up Etsy, which is an online retailer of vintage arts and crafts. And they also struck a deal with Macy's, you know, the big department store. And Macy's even took a small stake in Klarna. So it's looking fine. But of course, it's still early days. I think it's a risky bet. And Mr. Siemiatowski said as much. And he also said that it's taken Klarna quite a while to figure out whether to enter the U.S. market and how to do so. When you shop online with a credit card, you have buyer's protection. Klarna's offering in a market like Sweden and Germany, where people didn't have credit cards, was actually a very attractive offering. In the UK and the US, we were, for a long period of time, thinking, okay, what's the entry point? 
So basically what happened in the US and UK is there has been a shift away from credit cards. 70%, 7-0 of the millennial generation in the US do not have a credit card. Well, why? Because their parents are worried that they, yeah, they, they, that they overspend, right? Yeah. Changing regulation in the US. Also, student debt has grown immensely in the last uh, two decades. And there's also big skepticism. The banks are doing this, you know. What that meant is that these products that Klarna originally launched, you know, in Germany, Sweden, 15 years ago, suddenly have become extremely relevant in a US and UK context. That's really interesting. So, Vendelin, why do you think buy now, pay later schemes are becoming so popular? They are popular because they really do make shopping very easy. And Kaleido Intelligence, a research firm, is now forecasting that buy now, pay later will grow to $680 billion in transaction value in 2025 from $353 billion last year. And it's driven mainly by young, credit-hungry shoppers, in particular for Generation Z and millennials, but because it's so easy, it's also a reason why Klarna is quite controversial. So, for instance, the, the UK regulator is now looking at the whole buy now, pay later industry because they feel there's really a danger that young people in particular are sleepwalking into debt. So, of course, I asked uh, Mr. Siemiatowski about the credit risk and he was very careful to emphasize all the different safeguards that they have put in place to avoid non-payment or default. You know, all credit products needs to come with a level of responsibility. But I think if you put these two products against each other, the credit card means that you get 30 days credit for all of your spending. Interest-free, okay. And then after that, the credit card markets to you and say, hey, don't pay the full balance, pay less. And then I'm going to issue you a loan for the difference. And that loan can price at like 19% or 29%. We say the following, use your debit card for groceries. Occasionally, when you think it makes sense, do an installment. You have a yeah. clear, it's like $50 every second week. And there's no consumer interest, no consumer fees, because basically the merchant is paying for that instead. So everything else equal, if we're in a world where everyone would use a buy now, pay later type of model versus a credit card, I think we're in a better world. But Vendelin, anything that makes it easier for people to get into debt must be vulnerable to criticism. And it is Klarna also now more financially vulnerable when so many people's incomes have collapsed due to the pandemic? Absolutely. And Klarna is, is shouldering a substantial credit risk. And indeed, this year, it reported a net loss of 522 million kroner, which is about $50 million between January and June, which is a sevenfold increase from their net loss in the same period last year. So that shows you that people's personal finances are already under under strain. And, and, and of course, sort of the last thing you then want is something that makes it so easy to shop and so tempting that people will be lured into buying something they actually can't afford. Wendelin von Brido, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. And thank you for listening to Money Talks. While you're with us, please take a moment to rate or review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. We read them all and your feedback helps us immensely. I'm Patrick Lane. And in London, this is The Economist. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured or tall. Whatever your next project... There's a spray paint pattern that's just right. 
because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns, so you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1, only from Rust-Oleum.